Uh, I did serve for about 15 years on the board of um, a pregnancy center in suburban Philadelphia area. And some of the things that, that you would hear, it would just blow your mind. Um, you know, we would do counseling with, with the people, and many times one of the things we would ask is, is um, you know, do you know who the father of your baby is? And often we would get remarks like, well, I'm not sure. It's either my boyfriend or my father. And that's the kind of thing you deal with. And um, so I'm so happy that we're addressing this, praying about it, going to the Lord about it. Um, I'm, I probably shared this with you, but it's bringing back these, these feelings and emotions, so I'm going to share it with you anyway with your discussions there. Once, once a month, we would go down in front of the, the, the abortion clinic there in Philadelphia and, and preach the word and stand in front of it, actually. And there was a time when actually uh, the, the doors were blocked to the entrance. And, of course, people couldn't get in. And, uh, of course, the police came soon and um, you know, took us away. And actually, I have to give a, a, a compliment to the Philadelphia Police Department because what we were doing, like we were on our knees praying in front of the abortion clinic. So the policeman came by and very politely <clears throat> said, Sir, would you please stand up? I thought, That's pretty nice. And so I stood up. I cooperated with him. He said, no, Would you please come with me? So I went, he put us in a paddy wagon and took us downtown to the, to the police station there and walked us, uh, took our possessions and everything, and then um, walked us down the jail cell. <laughs> and he opened up the jail cell. He said, now, would you please step in? <laughs> okay. So you don't know how long you're going to, once you go there, you don't know how long you're going to be. And um, so, oh, boy, now what's this going to be? So, so we were there. Um, that was like about maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning when, when they took us in. And maybe around 1 o'clock, uh, the guard comes by with, with lunch. I think, am I going to have lunch? How long am I going to be here if I'm going to get lunch? But you know what? That lunch, I'll never forget what it was. It was just a plain um, cheese sandwich with a six-ounce glass of iced tea. And you know what? That was the best cheese sandwich I ever ate. Because that time I was starving and nervous and wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then, uh, so, and then they, they don't tell you anything. They just came and took my, my uh, food, my uh, dishes and plates and things. And they just leave you there. So how, mo- how long are we going to be here? Are we going to be an hour, a day, a week? How long? So it came about, um, about uh, 12 o'clock at night. A guard came by, unlocked, unlocked it, and he said, no, uh, you're free to go. But there's a, you're having the arraignment in about two months. Show up at the courthouse, and um, so you know, we went home that night. And then, but now you have the arraignment and you have the court. You have the court case, and that for me that was the worst part because you don't know what's going to what what they're going to do. So we go down to the court case, and so they start the, the case, and it lasted, I believe, like two and a half days. And uh, fortunately, the 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 lawyer defending us was uh, one of the best, from what I understand, in, in dealing with this issue. So you had witnesses come up and, you know, the whole ordeal, you go through this. And um, 
Now, if you're found guilty for this, it was, uh, it was two years in jail and uh, $2,000 fine. So I'm thinking, what's Vicky and the kids going to do if I'm spending, what's my church going to, I was pastoring a church at the time. That's going to, where's the pastor? Oh, he was in jail. Okay, don't worry about that. So anyway, went through the court case, and uh, by the grace of God, all we went through, as I say, two and a half after the second day, starting the third day, uh, the judge called the lawyers up. They had a little conference, and then the next thing I know, the judge says, gets his gavel, slams it down. Uh, case dismissed, all charges dropped. You're free to go. And, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. But you know what, though? I would do it again. In fact, I may do it again. To do something about this atrocity of, of the this abortion of killing kids, babies, infants. I don't know. If the United States of America going through all this? I could see this in other countries, but in America... We have to do this to, to defend unborn children. So we really got to pray, you know, pray for our Congress, Supreme Court, President, and all that stuff, you know. And that's our job. I'm so, um, so happy that those remarks were made today by Tim, and um, I certainly agree with them. And, if it, and what we need to do is to get to churches. Not, of course, you, know, you people understand what's taking place, and it's addressed. But most of the other churches out there don't just... Uh, don't want to talk about it because it could be divisive. It could cause this and all that. But that's the purpose of a church, to preach the word of God, then apply it in our personal life, apply it to our land. And sometimes there's a cost to that. But if there's a cost, so what? Then we pay the cost. It's nothing to debate. But unfortunately, people don't think that way. Okay, well, let's get on now to my, next, my second message I'm going to give here for you today. And we're looking here into Romans chapter 1. So if you would look there in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> now you probably have, <clears throat> did you pick this up at the front door? Somebody give you this. This is an outline, not an outline. It's actually a written message of what I'm going to give to you. And so usually a lot of times when I preach this, I sort of vary from it a lot. But I'm reviewing this. I'm pretty well right on course here. So you can have a written uh, transcript of it, and then the verses that I use to put this message together, there's about 22 cross-references, but I can't bring them up all now. We'll be here all day, unless you'd like to do that. Maybe you'd like to stay, we have lunch, come back, and have the second half. That'd be a good idea. Wouldn't that be fun to do that one day? We come here, have the morning service, break, have lunch, nice time of fellowship, come back together for the second half. We did that one. That's fun. That's a nice thing to do. Anybody want to do that? Okay, nobody wants to. You would do it. I know you would. Oh, Lisa, wish she would do that. Okay, so now look. Romans chapter 1. Uh, so now what are we going to do? I want to talk to you, share about verse 23. Romans 1, 23. And that says, And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. But before we get into that, let's look at the context. You know, so many times, that really opens up a verse, the context. And if you don't consider the context, many times you can walk away with the wrong idea. You see in verse number 21, because that when they knew God, stop right there. Who's they? When they knew God, take, takes you back to verse 18, which is talking about the ungodliness and the unrighteousness. Those who are ungodly and unrighteous. 
And then, okay, now going back to verse 21, because when they, they knew God, they glorify him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. That's another whole subject. What does scripture mean when it talks about a darkened heart? It's a very serious issue, but I'm not going to deal with that today because going on to verse 22, professing them to be wise, they became fools. So the people we're talking to, not only are they ungodly or not, and, and so forth, they think they're wise, but in reality, they're stupid fools, actually. Then verse 23 that we want, I want to talk to you about today in some detail, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Our Lord, we ask now that you will guide us as we look into your word. We pray that you will save souls, that you will encourage believers. Lord, help me to simply distribute accurately your word. And then we pray the Holy Spirit will take that in our congregation here and use it, press it in our heart, press it into our mind, that it will make a difference in our relationship with you, a difference in our relationship with others, making us more bold to get the word of God out, living holy lives, and repenting of sin. Guide us to that, and we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we want to look at this. As good expositors, let's look at some of these phrases here. This verse, by the way, is comprised of 26 words, and we want to analyze these words and see exactly what they're saying and what is the instruction of God for us today. So having looked at verse number 23, I want to ask some questions about about this verse. Question one, what changed? Question two, who changed it? Number three, what is meant by the phrase glory of God? And number four, what replaced the glory of God? So I want to carry on in that way. So let's go back then and talk. ask the question about what changed. Well, the glory of God changed. Now think about, just, just talk about that for a minute. The glory of God, what it means, it was manipulated. It was contaminated, the concept of the glory of God. Therefore, thus it was changed. The word changed is that word alasso, and it means to transform or to make over. And right away, we see the attack of the devil, don't we? Isn't that what Satan wanted to do? Change the word of God, attack the word of God, attack believers. So this is the kind of thing we're talking about here in verse number 23. And the the desire is to change the glory of God to be changed. Let's look about it today. Even now, the devil today, the unbelieving world, wants to change the gospel. What do we see in many of our churches today? You see liberalism breaking out with all of our churches. We see, well, we'll say, well, the Bible's not the word of God, but it contains the word of God. We hear that kind of nonsense. Well, Jesus wasn't like divine God. I mean, he was a good leader, but not divine God. And these things are being taught in churches and accepted as the norm. So we have, even in our generation, the changing of the glory of God. Now, the next question is, who changed it? Who's changing this glory of God? Who's making that move? Well, in the context that we're looking at here today, you go back, as I mentioned in verse 18, the unrighteous and the ungodly. So there's always those group of people who are wanting to change, infiltrate, contaminate 
God's word. They always want to tamper with God's word and distort it in some particular way. And of course, again, you know there is that attack on God's word today. The third question we want to look into then is what is meant by the glory of God? Now, this phrase, glory of God, is significant in the Bible. It is used 264 times. So when you see something in God's word, 264, you know it's a key concept in God's word. One way of expressing it is in Psalm 19. You know Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows knowledge, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That's the glory of God, meaning that the glory of God is visible. In creation it is visible. All know the glory of God. It's, it's in front of you, it is prevalent. Just look out this window and you will see the glory of God. You look up in the sky, and you see the glory of God. And that's what it's attempting to make here with these statements here. But what we're finding here, the fourth question we ask, what is going to replace? They want to replace the glory of God. What replaces the glory of God according to this text that we're looking at here today? The glory of God is being replaced with a five-letter word, an image, a mere image is replacing the holy, inspired, and errant word of God. Again, Psalm 19 would be appropriate again, as I've I've just shared that with you. The replacing of God's holy word, and from age to age, there's always been movements, there's always been people and philosophers and teachers who want to replace the word of God. Such an attack, think of all the attacks on God's word, down through the ages. I mean, we're blessed now that we can carry a Bible, we can recite it and hand out tracts. But I'll tell you what, if things continue to progress in America the way they have been progressing, we're going to have trouble handing out tracts in the near future. I mean, pray for America. And I don't want to go off on a tangent, but in a way I do. America needs a lot of prayer. Praise God. It's so good to see all you people here to worship the Lord today. And I know he's in your heart. I know you love the Lord. You serve him. And how desperate is that? Because whether if you know it or not, we're losing this country. You know that. If things continue as they are, it's not going to be very nice. Keep praying. Keep sharing Christ. Keep being a good citizen of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we really need to have some serious time and prayer for the United States of America. Getting back to this, no. Egyptian astronomer, Ptolemy, who lived from 106 A.D. to 170 He was one of the leading astronomers of the day. And he makes the statement, this grand bragging statement. He says, now we know that there is 1,056 stars. And maybe there may even be as many as 3,000. But that could never have any more than 3,000 stars. Anybody know verbatim Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 22, because there the statement is made, the stars cannot be numbered. They're too numerous. Nobody's going to count all the stars. But yet that's what man wants to do as we begin to shred God's word, as we try to turn from it. I think for just a moment, think of a telescope. You put that telescope out there in the sky, 
And, and we still know this. As strong as our telescopes are, the further out they go, the more space there is. Now, can you conceptualize the end of space? Can you even think, what would that be? I mean, like, is there a brick wall out there somewhere? <laughs> but you ask yourself the question, if that's, what's on the other side of it? There's no end to this thing. It's what they call eternity. That's what our telescopes will tell us about the creation that God put together. But what about the microscope? I put a microscope here on this table right here, and I know this. This is, although this looks solid, but it's mostly space. And we know that by using that microscope, getting down and look at the molecules and the nucleus and the electrons going around that nucleus. And between there, there's space. And there's millions, billions of them here, and mostly it, it is space. We can make that argument and press it. The glory of God. Creation shows to us the mighty glory of God. The molecular structure of matter gives a message. It gives a message of the power of God, of the, of the intelligence of God. Creation tells us this. And what I'm talking about here is what's called general revelation. General revelation basically is creation. And general revelation tells us three things about God without a word being spoken. And this message is, is given around the world without one word being spoken. And this is what it is. General revelation number one tells us that there is a God. You look around you. Something put it here. We're people of rationale. It just didn't boom, come out of, something does not come out of nothing. Secondly, general revelation tells us that whoever or whatever put this together is very intelligent. Thirdly, general revelation tells us that whatever put this together is very powerful. And that message goes to all men everywhere around the world. General revelation says nothing about Jesus Christ, says nothing about salvation, says nothing about sin. General revelation just tells us that there is a God. Beyond a doubt, there is an intelligent God who is there, who is, who is powerful, and who is intelligent. General revelation. But no one will ever be saved with just using general revelation. General revelation is there. We appreciate it. But you must have specific revelation for salvation. Of course, that's the gospel message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does he call us to do? To repent, to change our mind, and believe upon the Lord Jesus. And as we do that, we are freed from the future in hell. We go to heaven. That is specific revelation. The Bible is specific revelation. The Bible is not general revelation. Outside is general revelation. Gives us the message of God, that he is there. This is specific revelation. And I believe that there is a promise in God's word in John chapter 7, verse 17. That if a man is living on this planet, experiencing general revelation... But he wants to know more than just general revelation. He can think and reason, and he'll say to himself, look at this marvelous experience, but how did it get here? Did a God or did something put this here? And if a man begins to search for the cause of general revelation, God promises to get the message of the gospel to that person. 
John 7, 17, you, you see a, a promise that the Lord gives. Now, that does not mean they're going to get saved. It does mean that they will, if they're truly searching for truth, God will get the message to them. Now, whether if they receive it or not is another issue altogether. And we've heard this for many. When I was a student in Bible college, we'd have various missionaries come, and they're going in the jungles of South America and in Africa, and they give this story that they were like pagans. They had no true knowledge of God, but they realized that what what their worship was was not true. They realized that, you know, worshiping an idol or worshiping an animal, that really doesn't explain too much. And they began, and they would forsake this, and they'd just call out to God, God, show us the truth. If you are there, show us. And it's at that time when a missionary will come by and say, you know what, I want to tell you about the creator of all of this. And they get many conversions, and a great work takes place the difference between general revelation and specific revelation. The 18th century Scottish preacher Robert Haldane makes this statement. The glory of God refers to his attributes, which distinguishes him from the idols which the heathen worship. If I have in this hand an ant, little ant, and I have in this hand, uh, let's say, Mike, do I have it with me? I think I have it with me here. I do have it with me. I didn't lose it yet. Okay, so I have, excuse me, if I can get it out of this pocket here. Uncooperative little thing here. Look at this. Okay, now, just to get this point across here. I have an ant in this hand, and I have this, my little computer here in this hand. And now I'm going to try to explain to the ant how this works. It's not going to work. <laughs> they can't, the ant can't comprehend what's in this, can it? Well, you know what? That's, how, that's what occurs to the natural man. Left to himself, he'll never understand the word of God is beyond him. And that's true for us as we try to grow and learn more about God. And that's what Robert Haldane is saying, talking about God's attributes and how he relates to us. We have here then, our text talks about some of the attributes of God. One is the incorruptible God. As we look in verse 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God. That word incorruptible is the word aftertos. Incorruptible coming from the word aftertos, and it means that God is beyond corruption. He's beyond corruption. He's not tempted with corruption. He's beyond all this. It means impossible to corrupt. So the God that we worship, you don't have, is he going to change? Is he going to be the same next year, 10 years, the next decade? He is incorruptible. He is aftertos. We, you and I, can do things that God can't do. You realize that? As powerful and mighty as God is, we can do things which God cannot do. For example, we can tell a lie. God cannot lie. It's not that God chooses not to lie. He cannot lie. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with sin. We are tempted with sin every day. 
but because of the nature of God, he is not tempted and cannot be tempted with sin. And why is that? Well, let's look at this for a moment. Remember Jesus? As we go back and look at Jesus, and during his 40-day fast, remember what took place during that 40-day fast? Jesus fasts for 40 days. He's vulnerable. He's weakened. He's hungry after 40 days. Now, the question here, has anybody here, probably have, fast for one whole day, 24 hours? Anybody do that? Because you know if you do that, you're starving after 24 hours. I used to do that kind of thing with some regularity, fast for a day. But you know what? If you fast for a day, I'm telling you, by the time dinner comes around, man, you would eat a rat if it came across if you because you are starving. Jesus fasts, the Bible tells us, for 40 days. In that situation, who, who shows up? Satan shows up. Now, there's a lesson to learn right there. When you're weak, for whatever reason, emotionally, spiritually, physically, when you're weak, expect a visit from the enemy of your soul to tempt you, to provoke you. Be ready for that. That's why these things are in Scripture as they are. And what did he say to the starving Lord Jesus? What did he say? Number one, turn these stones into bread. Now think about that. If you're hungry and you get it, there's a stone, turn that into a nice loaf of bread. Come on, you're the Son of God, turn that into bread. Nobody can eat it. Of course, obviously, our Lord did not cooperate. Secondly, what does the devil, anybody know the second thing off the top of your head, what the Satan says to the Lord Jesus? He says, if you're the Son of God, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Jump off it. Show us that you're, the, you're God. Jump off of this thing and you're not going to be hurt and you're there going to prove to everybody you indeed are the Son of God. There'll be no more argument. Jesus, in a weakened state, has to deal with it. No, he doesn't give to it. The third thing, the devil says, then get down and worship me. Get on your knees and worship me and all this tension, all this difficulty will go away. All you got to do is come down and worship me. And then the Lord, in a weakened sense, in fact, would not do it. Jesus stood firm. He would not bow down. And so that's what we're going to find here. What we have to deal with, the Lord will come after us, or the devil will tempt us, and we need the Lord in our life to give us strength to deal with these things. You see here in our text, the very next question, the glory of God was changed into what? Getting back to our, what is the glory of God changed into? We talked about the word image. Explain that. But think about an image. Mankind is attracted to images. Did you know this? Now, we've taken several, uh, what you might call missionary journeys, into the third world. We've gone to the Caribbean islands a couple of times, went to Africa, and into, um, and boy, I'll tell you what. If you've been to Africa, <laughs> pray. Um, needs a lot of prayer, and that's where the Word of God needs to go. And um, so we've, you know, we've visited some of these places. And what do we discover? You know what we find in all of these places? We find images. Images are worshipped around the world. Buddhist religion, Hindu religion, 
Catholicism. Think in the Catholic Church. You ever go into a Catholic Church? You've got images all over. Third world religions use, use these things. And so you have here the issue of images. Now, what does God's word tell you about an image? Here's one. In fact, I'll read this to you. Uh, if you look in Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles, you, 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 you aware of the Lord's discussion about images? And you find this in Exodus chapter 20. And found in verse number in verse number three, Exodus chapter twenty, verse three, talking about the images now, which you will find in churches. <clears throat> and he says in verse three, Exodus chapter twenty and verse number three. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. North Carolina... We have in the magazine, National Historic Site of North Carolina, there was a study done on Indians of North Carolina. And with that study, studying the culture, studying their habits, and we discover what? That they worshiped idols and images, and of course they were pantheistic, meaning that they worshiped many gods. And this is what happened to those who, who, who worship and follow or give praise to images. And what does that do to us, to an imaging, worshiping people? Number one, it robs God of his glory. If I'm given an image, my attention, God is getting robbed of glory. And number two, the worship, they're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And often people make that mistake. They think they're worshiping God, but really they're doing the creation they're worshiping and not God himself. Secondly, we find this, that the glory of God was changed into an image like unto birds. I think that's, isn't that weird? The image of God, this is to the idol worshipers, they make an image of a bird. And then they worship that image of the bird. And then this word, Birds refers to all winged creatures. And you know, on this earth, there's about 10,000 various winged creatures in the world. Thirdly, the image of God was made like unto four-footed beasts. Now we're learning this, the four-footed beast. What, what does a pagan man do with a four-footed beast? They sacrifice. They're young unto the four-footed beast. You see, that sounds gross, doesn't it? Because it is. But think about it. Without the word of God, an unsaved person is capable of anything. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They don't have the direction of God's word. And why do you think you look in the world around you today? 
All kind of catastrophes occur with regularity. Why is that? Because the word of God is not going out. The word of God is not in our heart. And you leave a man to himself, to his own devices. And, well, just look at history. I don't have to tell you. Get a history book out and read it, and you'll see what occurs when man is left to his own devices. And then the last thing we see, the word of God is changed into creeping things, which means creatures that slither along, uh, sl- slither along the floor of the earth, you know, snakes, etc., what it has in mind here. And you notice in this list of creatures, there's a declension. It starts with man, and then it goes down. And then the birds, and the four-footed beasts, and then the creeping things. Because that's what sin does. It brings cultures, it brings mankind down. And now you think about that lie of evolution. Now, what does evolution teach? It teaches just the opposite. Man was, you know, this thing, right? But then magically, hey, he starts to stand up, and magically, you know, becomes more sophisticated, and he's a man. And of course, that's nothing more than a fairy tale taught in our schools, but that's, but notice it's just the opposite of what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us man was created in the image of God, intelligent. But because sin comes into the world, now sin and mankind goes down and down and down. And that's what we have. That's, by the way, brings us to the end of verse number 23, with a downward progression of life. But what is the result of this declension? If you skip over or skip down to verse 25, you'll see the result of this downward declension of mankind. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who was blessed forever. So our text today, verse 23, and we're going to find next time 24 and verse 25, does not end well. But you know what? The Bible is a book of truth. It does not tell little stories to keep everybody happy. It does not tell little pithy little thoughts. But rather, it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word. I appreciated today the remarks that were made about God's holy word. And we need to say that with regularity, because again, the world and many churches you know, are, are taking a second look at this. And they're saying, this, you know, this, the literal inspired word of God? No, that's not what it is. It's a good book, good thoughts. But and so I'm glad you're taking a strong stand on this. And that is exactly what we need to do. So we're going to finish here in verse 24. And of course, the results, again, are not encouraging. But that's not the end of the story. It's the end of verse 24. But I want to conclude on a positive note. So therefore, I'm going to have to leave the text and, well, do this. Leave the text, look into the word of God for just a minute to give you a closing thought. And um, I did this. I found something in the book of 1 Corinthians I want to leave with you. Actually, I looked in the book of Corinthians. And you know the book, the, the 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians has seven, seven, uh, 437 verses. 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians has 256 verses for a total of 693 verses in the book of Corinthians alone. And so I'm thinking what I'd like to do is just get an appropriate verse 
to finish this off. Because the text I gave you isn't appropriate to finish on, other than you just want to leave it like, <laughs> like you're walking off a cliff. So I'd like to turn you to one other verse, and then we'll conclude with a prayer. So of all those verses there, of a total of 693 verses, which one should I select? Which one would the Lord have me select? Well, you know, you pray about these things and just move forward with them. And so what I'd like to do is to draw your attention to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Would you do that, please, as we get ready to conclude? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the verse I'd like to give to your attention, which is a good verse to conclude any sermon on. Now notice, we're in 2 Corinthians. We're at the end. See, there was 1 Corinthians. And with that, we did 437 verses. We go through 2 Corinthians. With that, you go through 256 verses. So at the end of all that, you have a great climax. What's the point Paul's making with the Corinthians. And it's beautifully laid out in the fifth verse of the third chapter of the second epistle of Corinthians. In other words, we're talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. But look at this. this is a, these are instructions to the church. This is very appropriate for us. Examine yourself. Isn't that beautiful? At the end of Paul's writing, finally he says... You in Corinth, examine yourself. You know, I'm not just writing to you to entertain you. With the information I have given to you, what do you do with it? Look and examine yourself. And then he goes on, whether you be in the faith. Now think of going all through this, and he is suspecting that there are people, and well, we know this in the Corinthian church, who were not saved. They're part of the Corinthian church, part of the group, but they themselves have never been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ, and had they died then in that state, they would have plunged into hell. So Paul says, in closing of his two writing to the, to the church of Corinth, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. And then he says, prove yourself. Prove it. What proof do you have you're in the faith? Prove, your, prove yourself. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. And you know what a reprobate is? A reprobate is someone who never gets saved. He may be in the church, or he may be an agnostic, or atheist, or whatever. They're, they're, they're reprobates. They're never going to get saved. They hear the gospel, and they may, may be in churches, they're in schools, they're teachers, they're all, all a reprobate. But Paul, talking to the church of Corinth, is bringing this out. And he's saying, examine yourself. So I would say that today. That would be my closing. Not mine. That's Paul's. I'm simply copying him. As we conclude in a few moments with a prayer, what would be the appropriate thing to do? You're in a church. You hear the gospel preached. And yet, you know what? I didn't preach the gospel. I preached you the Bible. But what's the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. An application of the gospel is to change your mind about whatever you believe and receive Christ. That's the gospel, so at least I preach that. But, but I would say this to you. And again, you know what? I, got, I, I probably said this earlier as well. Vicki and I love coming here. You know, we have fun, look forward to being here. because This is a great congregation, by the way. Hope you people realize that about yourself. 
We visited various congregations. I preach in uh, two other churches uh, with some regularity, and you know, we visit churches here and there. But I'm going to tell you, you have a great congregation here. Fantastic ministry taking place and great potential to go on, to do great things for God. This is a wonderful collection that the Lord has brought here. And you need to know that about yourself. And you can do great things for God. But you need what you, you need to do, I need to do from time, I do this from time to time. I say to myself, how do I know I'm saved? I say to myself, how do I know? What, because I preach in a church? Because I, I was a pastor? Is that it? No, because we need to do a sermon on this sometime. Religious self-deception. Boy, that is a topic for our day. Religious self-deception. Meaning that there are those out there who think they're saved. They're involved in a church. They cut the grass. We were talking about where they're going to cut the grass and all. They cut the grass, do the visitation, and yet their heart may not be circumcised. So you need to examine this. So that's why I bring this up here today. Examine. So each of you to examine yourself. I don't examine. I'm not judging you. <laughs> I know you've been wonderful to us. But is it possible maybe someone here isn't, you're not, you're not born again. You could be here because you like to fellowship, you're popular, you know, it's fun, it's enjoyable. But have you turned your heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the thing you need to ask yourself. And if you have, great, praise God, and, you know, enjoy. But if you haven't, why don't you deal with that and deal with it now? I'm going to close with a prayer. And if you have never pushed your faith... So what do we have here? We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. You see, because some people think, and I've had this talking to people. They say, Don, stop talking. There's no way I'm going to get saved. You don't know what I've done. I've done blah, 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 blah. But what does the Bible say? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe that may be a problem here. You've done something, said something. God would never really save me. I come to church, I enjoy the fellowship, but I really have no hope for heaven. Nonsense. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. Did you get that part there? Your salvation is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God not of works. You know, sometimes, I think in America, a lot of times, we don't make this clear. You can go to many churches and walk away with the impression, if I'm good enough, I can be saved. If I join a church and I give money and I, I'm good, he's going to save me. That's, none of, that's nothing. We're not saved by ourselves. We have to be saved by trusting in Christ alone. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. You know, I've given you, I know I've given you this. I'm going to give you this to you again, and I know you're going to say this. I don't want to see that again. But you know what? If I annoy you with this enough times, you're going to learn it, and you can use it. It'll help you to share the gospel as well. And that's how I learned it, that way. This hand represents me, Don Britton, a miserable, miserable sinner. My glasses represent my sins, all the sins that I have committed. But really, if it was to... Um, Actually, really what it should be. If I'm getting something to dramatize my sins, maybe I should do something like this. This may be more realistic. This is Don Britton. This is my sins. 
And that's probably true for all of us. But what does the Bible tell us? The Lord Jesus came. We know this. He loves us, Don Britton, and all of us. He loves us, but he cannot tolerate our sin. He hates our sin. This hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He did many wonderful things, but we know he came to die on the cross to make a substitutionary payment for our sin. He came and took our sin on himself. Jesus has my sin while he's tacked up there on the cross, leaving me how many sins to pay for? None. My sins are gone. Where are they? Did they disappear? No. Jesus took them. This transaction occurs when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus. I don't have time to go on, but even the faith to trust in Christ, that's a gift as well, by the way. That's why we're saved by grace and not our own good works. If you have any doubt in your own life, talk to the Lord about it right now. Receive him now. Say, yes, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to be saved. Really, it's that simple. If you mean it, it's a transaction which will revolutionize your life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to say thank you for bringing us together this day. Thank you for the wonderful Lord's Day. That in your plan for the ages, you have arranged for the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, when your people should come together and to praise you and to worship you and and to minister one to another. It's a glorious thing. And Lord, we want to say Thank you for this particular church. Thank you for the leadership. Thank you for the the newest member here in our church. I don't know who that is, but I see newer people here today, and that's a good thing. And we thank you for this. And we ask, Lord, that the Bible Presbyterian Church of Pilgrim will, will proceed on, will press on, that you will bring by your plan sinners, into the church, born-again sinners who can be part of this wonderful fellowship, protect the church, grow the church, deepen the church. May their understanding be be deepening as time goes on. God, our fellowship today, it's it's been a wonderful time, and we say thank you for this. And therefore, I say, may God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you all in Jesus' name. Amen.